welcome, 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 This podcast is made by and for our internal medicine residents to enhance our educational experience. The content while edited by residents is not verified by hosts or speakers, and we are not content experts on these topics. The content provided by the podcast is not intended and should not construe as medical advice and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical condition. We attempt to avoid use of opinion, but all opinions represented are our own and are not representative of employer. Please keep this in mind as you enjoy our podcast. Welcome back to the Vanderbilt Internal Medicine Podcast. Guys, this is a very special episode because today we have with us Casey Smiley, one of the founders of this podcast. I was going to coin the term, she's our, our pod mother. Our pod mother. That's right. She's the one who taught us everything that we know. <laughs> our fairy pod mother. <laughs> um, so yeah, for, for our interns, Dr. Smiley uh, had the took well care of the podcast for two years with Dr. Alex Wiles until she moved on to ID Fellowship, and she is coming back for a special episode to educate us on a few different topics. Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm excited to be back. Hopefully you're not sick of hearing my voice in these podcasts too much. Um, I'm actually sending a picture to Dr. Wiles as we speak of you guys uh, recording. We're so. all grown up. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, Casey, thank you so much for coming back. Can you, for those of our listeners who are not as familiar with you, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do like to do for fun and what you're hoping to do with your career? Of course. Um, so I am a second year infectious diseases fellow here at Vanderbilt. I did my residency here as well. Alex and I took over the podcast initially from Eddie Chen. So we sort of grew it quite a bit, which was fun. Um, I'm actually applying for jobs now, hoping to find a position in medical education, um, clinician educator. So that's exciting. Also recently got married, recently got another dog. So lots of life events. Very exciting. Wow. Yeah. I'm just trying to jam everything in. Uh, I know. Before the end of fellowship. Yeah, let's just do it all in all in one year. Um, So no, it's been an exciting time, but definitely a very different pace um, being in a second year fellowship than being in residency. So but it's been really fun to do a fellowship. I feel like I've learned a lot and hopefully can share some of this knowledge with y'all today. So Casey, I know that I still kind of text you sometimes with questions (laughs) because I try not to put in formal consults if I don't (laughs) need to. Um, But we were kind of hoping that you might go through with us and with our listeners some of the most common things you either get paged about or get consulted about. Maybe you could give us some of the quick and dirty answers so that maybe we can triage some of these issues on our own. Yes, I would be happy to. I think one of the fun things about ID is that a lot of it really is just medicine. So when you talk about a lot of these issues, we're not talking about doing heart catheterizations or bronching people. It really is you know, although we do like bronking people, yeah, don't we, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> You're talking to the wrong. I yeah. also like when you bronk people. I will say, <laughs> I like getting cultures. It's true, but it really is a specialty where it's very focused on medicine, and so mm-hmm. I think a lot of these skills are skills that you know people should have as internal medicine residents, as surgery residents, really any field you go into, you're going to encounter infectious diseases, especially my medicine residents, folks. There's some things we get paged about that I, I think would be good to talk about, and are maybe some on and off hot topics. So I did make a list for today. The first thing on my list is asymptomatic bacteria. So how do you two feel about this one, this topic? Well, I know, uh, uh, shout out to 
Dr. Merkhofer, he feels very strongly about this topic, and <laughs> I've heard him speak to many different people about it. But it's my understanding that we get a lot of your analysis. We click right through the epic thing that's like, are you sure you need this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I always say yes. But I think the point here is that we care a lot about symptoms, and symptoms matter a lot in terms of how we interpret your analysis. Is that kind of where exactly. this is going? Exactly. So I think – One of the key things here is not forgetting about the patient. A lot of what we do, we're so bogged down writing our notes that you see test results, you see things like that, and it pops up and there's something growing in the urine. Let's start off. Urine is not sterile. That's one of my big things. Things can grow in the urine, bacteria, candida, a lot of things can grow in the urine, and a lot of it can be normal flora. There's nothing in the urine that can't be normal flora. For example, one of the pages we got the other day was there's pseudomonas in the urine. You know, So my first question to the team was, do they have have symptoms? symptoms? And they sort of were flustered, you know, oh, I don't know – can pseudomonas just be in the urine? A lot of things can be in the urine. This is not, you know, it's not based on the yeah. organism. I will say there are some, you know, something very strange grows. It's reasonable to ask us about mm. it. Staph aureus, I like to point out, is not really a urinary pathogen at all. But if you do find it in the urine, do you guys know my teaching point on this? Look for it elsewhere. I yes. Think Dr. Langone taught me it was like hematogenous spreads. Yes. So. so get a blood culture. Get a blood culture. Right. Okay. So most likely it's just skin contamination from mm-hmm. getting the sample. Mm-hmm. It's just from the skin. But occasionally the staph bacteria can actually be filtered through the kidney if someone's bacteremic and they can grow it in their urine. So if you're actually concerned. The patient's really sick. Yes. It could be bacteremic. Yes. So definitely check a blood culture. But other than that, most anything else can grow in the urine and it's not based on the pathogen that we treat. It's all based on symptoms. So another point here, just know that whenever you page me about something growing in the urine, um, I want to know about their symptoms. And one of those symptoms cannot be just altered mental status. Yes. So they're actually really great guidelines uh, from the geriatric medicine folks that help with that. And altered mental status on its own is not a symptom of UTI. Some people can get altered later on, but it doesn't kind of count towards your diagnosis. I will say, realistically, it's really hard to tease that out when they're so altered that they can't actually tell you if they're having any other symptoms or not. But so many things cause kind of an acute delirium, especially in our older folks, and their rates of bacteria in the urine are so much higher that we definitely overtreat a lot of those. But there are very clear guidelines for diagnosing UTIs in older folks, and they're agreed upon kind of by both the ID folks and the geriatricians. So yes, burning with urination, (laughs) frequency, Mm -hmm. things like that. Foul-smelling urine is not a symptom of a UTI. What about cloudy urine? That's cloudy urine is not a symptom mm. of a UTI. Okay. But if they have suprapubic tenderness, frequency, mm-hmm. or pain with urination, those are all things to think about. And then you throw in a Foley, right? I was going to – yeah, I was, I, was, I was waiting for this. <laughs> right, because everyone's like, oh, but there's the a ICU. Foley catheter in mm-hmm. place and they're in the ICU. So – with something in the bladder, it's even more likely to be colonized with bacteria, right? So it kind of makes my 
threshold a lot higher to have to treat them. You really have to prove to me that you're having an infection. But one of the easiest things to do if you're worried about a catheter-associated mm-hmm. UTI is just swap out the catheter. Love it. That's usually enough to kind of get rid of that initial colonization or at least get a fresh sample if you're mm-hmm. at all concerned. But it's a tough it's a tough subject. You know, it seems straightforward. Are they having symptoms or not? And a lot of times you just need to ask the patient. That's the first step. That's difficult. Um, That's a difficult. It, is. it requires a lot of activation. It energy. is. I mean, Walk especially yeah, yeah, them, overnight. Examining them. Or if you're on the other side of the hospital, yeah. you know, but it's really very, very important and you need to know if they're having symptoms. Even if they're altered, usually someone can tell you if they have pain when they pee, right? Or the nurse can tell you they're having pain when they pee. Yeah. Usually that's something that's picked up on press on their bladder and they like shout out. Right. So again, back to the simple history and physical. So I think this is something that's very close to my heart. But again, we're Mm -hmm. talking about diagnosing a urinary tract infection. This is not, you know, not rocket science. It's a medicine topic. So I think it's important to to go over and feel confident in not Mm -hmm. ordering a urinalysis if they're not having symptoms. Casey, because we were talking about transplant just prior to us pushing record, um, <laughs> because we see a lot of transplant patients. I assume the, the answer is going to be the same for transplant patients, but just to clarify, if you have asymptomatic bacteria in a transplant patient, despite their immunocompromised state, you're still treating it as if symptoms are guiding you towards treatment. Yeah. So this gets a little bit more tricky too, because it's all about how far they are out from transplant and different transplant facilities have different guidelines. Um, typically here, if it's within the first month of the transplant, we will go ahead and treat just because there's a fresh new kidney there with someone who's immunocompromised. But really after that, you really shouldn't be checking checking UAs regularly for bacteria. Um, So yes, the same thing applies later. But again, you also, when you're thinking about symptoms, they're a lot more likely to get pilo of the transplanted kidney. And so looking for tenderness over their graft, not CVA tenderness, kind of where the native kidneys would be. And then Casey, there are a few select situations in which we would treat asymptomatic bacteria area. Is that right? Yeah. I'm trying to dig deep in my med school brain. (laughs) Yeah. So one of the other things, especially, you know, when it's been a long night and you get the page about something in the urine, my first question is, are they having symptoms? My second question often is, and and this one's really fun, depending on what hospital you're you're at, um, is, are they pregnant? Yes. Okay. I was waiting for that. (laughs) Usually the answer is no, um, Mm. especially at one of our hospitals. So yeah, pregnancy is one of the exceptions. If they're about to have a urologic procedure, Mm. um, that's the other exception, which our urologists are very good about kind of treating their own infections. Um, And then there, you know, there are a few others, like I said, transplant, kidney transplant patients in the first month, at least here. Um, But those are pretty much the only times you're going to just be treating someone who's truly asymptomatic. Awesome. All right. What do we have next on our list? Yes. So the next one, I'm laughing because I sort of wrote these down furiously with (laughs) kind of out of frustration. But even though I'm very rarely on call uh, nowadays being a second year fellow. um, But the second one I have is sputum cultures and their utility. And I Mm. think this one is is especially important. You're walking on thin ice over here because I love my sputum cultures. Yes. So, you know, I love a good bronch and BAL. Mm. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the, you know, spit up 
that patients give us or the tracheal aspirates from our patients in the ICUs. Yes, everyone's nodding Uh, their head. (laughs) I've ordered thousands of these, I think. Yes. So they're not... They're not never helpful. I'll do a double negative there because I think that's probably the easiest way to describe it. But a lot of times they are not helpful. Mm -hmm. Very similar to the asymptomatic bacteria where you will just grow organisms. As we know, the lungs are not a sterile site either. No. Um, This I do know. They are not (laughs) a sterile site. And just because something grows in the lungs, even if it looks absolutely scary. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's causing disease, right? I think that's the hardest thing is when you have a culture to be able to say, I'm actively not going to treat it. It gets a little bit easier when you don't have any options to treat it and you need to call me. You're like, we (laughs) held off because we weren't sure if this was causing problems. Our One of our second-year fellows, Michael Chambers, is actually doing a project um, looking at the utility of sputum cultures oh, in our ICU. Bit. So stay tuned for that. But uh, spoiler, so far, it's not looking like they're extremely helpful. Mm. So really, again, what you're getting a lot of the times is colonization. And our folks who aren't intubated, a lot of times it's just kind of their, their spit up. If they're having symptoms of a pneumonia and they're able to give you productive sputum, um, that can be helpful. But in someone who just had a fever and doesn't have any increased oxygen requirement or change in their vent settings or um, increased secretions, if they don't have any symptoms and you're just getting it for something like an underlying fever or a leukocytosis, it's really hard to attribute that as the cause. Because a lot of times, especially if someone's been on a lot of antibiotics, you're going to get some pretty resistant organisms mm-hmm. or some organisms that are just intrinsically resistant to a lot of our antibiotics. Steno, stenotrophomonas, mm-hmm. one of my personal, um, I don't want to say Nightmares. favorites because it uh, it kills me to have to treat steno. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those organisms that is just intrinsically resistant to a lot of our mm-hmm. first line antibiotics. So it ends up growing because nothing else can. Um, and it's really hard to tell if it's actually causing disease. So again, I sort of think of it like my urinalysis or urine cultures and are they having symptoms, right? And that kind of helps guide, maybe I shouldn't get this in the first place, Right. Right. Maybe I, it's not part of our routine, mm-hmm. quote unquote, infectious workup if they are not having Ooh, a word, a word that I hate. Yeah. They're just, not having hypoxia or a, a new that might bring us to our next topic. <laughs> what what should we do if, uh, you know, we're on cross cover and someone fevers overnight and mm-hmm. we see the sign out is please do an infectious workup and then treat to source? Ooh, so I will say, you know, I'd hope that's what anyone would do in general, but it's not a very, not a very specific uh, sign out. I think trying to put some thought into this, and this was one of my um, personal issues when I was in residency as well as sort of just the infectious workup in general. A lot of places that means chest x-ray, blood cultures, and a urine culture. Mm-hmm. Again, that takes us back to kind of why get a urine culture if someone is asymptomatic? It's not going to actually kind of give you any further information. I will say a lot of times in the middle of the night, it's hard to know that, which is why it can be so important for the cross cover team to sort of give you some guidance as to what's going on. If the person's there for something like kidney stones, 
sure, get a urinalysis. Or, you know, if, you know, they were saying during the day, again, if it was during the day, I would hope that they had gotten a urine culture then. But any information is really, really helpful. And that sort of goes with a chest x-ray as well, right? If the patient is not having any respiratory symptoms, um, cough, shortness of breath, any new oxygen requirement, even if they did have something on their chest x-ray, they wouldn't clinically have a pneumonia, mm-hmm. right? So I think the only one that's fairly reasonable in a hospitalized patient who likely has, you know, IVs, I think blood cultures are reasonable mm-hmm. most of the time um, for someone who's hospitalized. But the other ones I, I want to challenge everyone to put in a little bit more thought Mm -hmm. for both the cross-cover resident overnight, but the teams sort of writing the sign out and say, you know, what is more likely to happen in this patient? Um, Have they had, you know, a new cough that we're sort of monitoring, then maybe get another chest x-ray, that sort of thing. Right. Um, But definitely, you know, the urinalysis should not be part of your standard infectious workup because then it comes back, something grows because urine isn't sterile. And then you're sort of in a hard spot saying like, well, they did have a single isolated fever, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which can be caused by a lot of things in the hospital. So yeah, just infectious workup in general um, is not my favorite term. Or, you know, you get the blood cultures and you get one out of two with staph epi. Oh, mm. I think that might bring us yeah. to our next topic. Is this about, another page? Yeah, yes. I think. The number of pages that we get on ID <sighs> with, you know, one out of two, one out of four blood cultures with coag negative staph, mm-hmm. right? So this is really hard because in some circumstances, staph epi can truly be pathogenic, right? But I think a lot of times people either get confused with staph aureus. Mm -hmm. Um, So I actually don't like to say, you know, MRSE or MSSE, because I think that's too confusing with MSSA or MRSA. I actually call it coag negative staph, which which helps. So I think saying, you know, methicillin resistant coag negative staph or methicillin susceptible coag negative staph because it is extremely different. There are some people that we care about um, if they have staph epi in their blood. The vast majority of people, this is a skin contaminant. It has epidermidis in the name. It is on our skin. Um, you know, it's really hard to get sterile samples, especially, you know, on our older folks or people who have poor veins, especially if someone's a hard stick and you ask them about, you know, getting the blood cultures and they said, oh, they had to poke me, you know, five times. Right. How well were they able to clean all five of those sites, right? right? The more kind of they're going at it and trying to get that sample, the more risk for kind of picking up some just normal skin flora. Now, do you guys know the kind of clinical scenarios where I would care about staph epi in the blood? I'll let Dr. Swanson take this first. If they have an an indwelling line, do we care more about staph epi? Yes. and like hardware too, right? Because it's a big exactly, biofilm. exactly. The thing I always tell my patients when they have staph hepi in the blood, and we ultimately have to go see them, is oh, this is a sticky bacteria. If you just remember, it sticks to your skin, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I tell them is that's why it's on our skin. It sticks to our skin. It likes to stick to lines, to joints occasionally to heart valves. Mm -hmm. So the way I sort of reassure myself when I see one of these patients, and again, it's easier if it's one out of four or, um, you know, 
two out of even two out of four if it's from the same collection bottle. It gets a little harder when it's, you know, four out of four multiple times. Then you're really going back and kind of asking the questions over again. Um, do you have any, you know, prosthetic heart valves? Do you have any history of endocarditis, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of getting at, is there anything stuck to the valve? Do you have any ports that were never removed? Right. Do, and that can be sometimes hard to tell because they might not, you know, tell you and a lot of our patients, at least here, come from outside hospitals and have been treated in the past. So do you have any indwelling lines or ports that haven't been removed? And again, a good history and physical exam will help tell you that. And then prosthetic joints, which is a little less common, but especially if it's more recent. Oh, like, oh, yeah, I just actually had my hip replaced or my knee replaced. That would Mm -hmm. be something I'd care a lot more about with Staph Epi in the blood. Mm -hmm. It's really most common at least that we see here with indwelling lines. So we're not talking about peripheral IVs. We're talking about um, central lines, right? So either pick lines or triple lumens in the ICU, things like that, ports. But I always laugh because people consult us, you know, even if it's a true line infection, which a lot of the data we have actually suggests that if you just take out the line, um, that treats the infection. And then just a quick follow-up question, Casey. Mm-hmm. We, um, as medicine residents, order a lot of blood cultures. Can you just give us some quick pearls about how many, where should we draw them, and if they already have a central line, um, mm-hmm. does that change your answer? And I know this is very nuanced, but just briefly, yeah. you have some advice for us. Yeah. So it's always different kind of based on your patient. How many lines do they have? What's their history? But I think in general, you know, if it's someone who's coming in with, you know, weeks of fevers and you're trying Mm -hmm. to do sort of a fever of unknown origin or an endocarditis workup, the guidelines actually say three sets of peripheral blood cultures. Yeah. So if they're kind of coming in fresh and that's what they have, that's what I would start with. Okay. Anytime someone... means three different sites, right? Correct. Okay. Correct. And then six total bottles? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm just trying to do some quick math because I know that can be confusing. Right. It's a people. lot. But again, if someone's coming in with weeks of fevers, yeah, I think that's a, a very reason, reasonable place to start, especially because a lot of times they're being started on antibiotics. So having that sort of pre-culture data is very important. If they do have a line, I do like getting cultures from the line. Granted, you always need to kind of interpret these a little bit differently. Caution. But if staph epi is growing from a line, I take that as, as real because you know that that line is most likely colonized with it. Um, and typically that just means a few days of bank until they swap out the line. So it's not sort of this critical life-threatening infection yeah. typically. I think of kind of staph aureus as the people you folks probably see in the ICU who are just kind of crashing, yes. right? A oh staph aureus bacteremia. Staph epibacteremia, it's so wimpy that it shouldn't Unless it's sort of an overwhelming, you know, there's always exceptions. So I hate to say it's never, you know, the patient who's crashing. Of course. But unless they have a huge vegetation related to endocarditis and mm-hmm. overwhelming infection, these people are usually just walking around, um, might have an isolated fever. They're yeah. usually doing just fine because it's not the same organism. Right. So if they have a line, I get cultures from the line. If you're sort of starting a fever of unknown origin or sort of an endocarditis workup, I mm-hmm. recommend three sets of 
the blood cultures. Okay. Those should all be from different sites, peripheral. Otherwise, you can usually just two, do two sets. So usually it's one from each arm. Okay. I know it's not us usually collecting the blood cultures, but asking nursing staff to actually label kind of where the cultures right. came from can be right. really important, especially when you have staph epi and multiple samples. Because I think a lot of times we end up treating people for, you know, when three of their four bottles are growing staph epi, but maybe they all came from the same site is right. sort of an underlying suspicion. Sometimes the patient will tell you, no, I think they only drew this from one arm, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but that makes it tricky for us. So just having those bottles labeled as to where they came from. Again, like I said, it's easy when it's one out of four and you get another sample and there's no staph epi in right. the repeat sample. It's a lot harder when it's four out of four. And even then, usually I just say repeat the cultures and hold off on treatment um, yeah. if they're stable. stable. And then, you know, the hard part is when they've gotten antibiotics in the meantime. So before you start antibiotics, if you're at all suspicious, order that repeat set. You know, if they just look too good and you're worried about a contaminant. Mm -hmm. um, but I will say things in the blood that we never treat as contaminant would be Staph aureus and then Candida. I've seen some people, because Canada can be normal skin flora as well, but we never treat it as contaminant in the blood. But staph epi, definitely. <laughs> awesome. Are Thank you. you. To, is that a seg into your candidate? <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, before we go to your next page, I do just want to know, this is not us telling people, you know, hey, it's this easy to just walk to the patient bedside, but there is a theme here, and that is with this asymptomatic bacteria, go see the patient and maybe don't mm -hmm. order it if you don't think that they're symptomatic. With these blood cultures, if you have one out of four staph epi or even two, two out of four staph epi, going to talk to the patient and saying, hey, do they have the risk factors you're talking about? Mm -hmm. um, I think it saves you time in the long run because then it saves you time on the back end of like, right. should we consult ID about these blood cultures? So I, I love to sit down as much as mm -hmm. the next person, but like walking to the patient bedside, you can get a lot of information and then you can kind of confidently present on rounds and say, hey, X, Y, Z is why I don't think right. that this is important. And I know we joke about, you know, getting a lot of consults <laughs> and getting a lot of pages. I'm happy to answer questions all the time. And, you know, if you, if you really aren't sure you want to run mm -hmm. something by us, but I will say it's a lot better of a question and it's a lot better of a consult when you do have that information. So if you call me for, you know, a staph epibacteremia and let's say it's three out of four, but you're able to tell me they don't have any, you know, prosthetic heart valves or prosthetic joints, they don't have any indwelling lines, mm -hmm. or maybe a reason why you are concerned. Um, you know, a recent procedure, something like that, it's going to be a much better consult than if you don't give me any of that information. Right? Right. We want cases to think we're smart when we <laughs> consult them. <laughs> yeah, I had I did have a few tips too for putting in consults, which that's sort of one of them <laughs> is have that information ready, have talked to the patient. If you put in a consult and you've never met the patient before, for certain things, you know, if it's an urgent consult, which ID almost never is, but you know, if someone has neck fash and you're consulting surgery, you know, don't stop and wait and talk to you no know, consult surgery. Um, but for ID, I think it's so important because our specialty is a history and physical. So if you haven't done that for yourself, it's hard to sort of put that into a question form. Mm -hmm. And that's the other thing is have a question. So what is your question for me, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you put gram-positive bacteremia, again, that's usually a medicine subject or a urinary tract infection. That's a medicine subject. I want to know what is your question? What do you need from us? Because that will get you a better consult in the end. Because if you tell me, you know, symptomatic 
true UTI, <laughs> and they have a lot of difficult allergies, but we're hoping to go home in the next few days, that's a much better mm-hmm. consult than if you just say UTI. Because then I'm looking through the chart trying to figure out why, you know, medicine residents are consulting me for a UTI, right? So consult with as much data as you can, right? So having cultures back, again, is going to give you a much more thoughtful consult. The more you give us with the initial consult, I was told one time that's always going to be kind of when the most thought is put Mm -hmm. in by a consultant is the first time you consult them. So if, you know, you immediately get a positive culture, but it's just a gram stain, it's probably not going to be as great of a consult as if you actually have an organism, right? Right. But again, at any point, if you're unsure, reaching out to us, but having talked to the patient is going to, we're going to hopefully be able to answer your question a lot better. So just to summarize, actually meet the patient, <laughs> talk to them, do some chart review. Touch them even. Touch, Touch them most yeah. of the time. I know. Uh, and then... Take your first stab at it. And then if you still have questions that you think uh, infectious disease specialists could help with, whether it's choice of antibiotics, duration, help with source after you've already thought about it, then that's probably an appropriate time to reach out for help. And if you, and if anytime you're not sure, we want you to reach out for help. But I will say, especially, you know, if you're an intern or a new upper level resident, if you call me and you say, you know, I'm not really sure what to do here. This is the information I have. And this is what I'm thinking. Um, I will probably be able to tell you, you know, that sounds reasonable or, oh, it sounds like it should probably be a full consult. Um, it's a much better conversation than just, again, f- kind of flailing or not having a question and not putting in the consult or not asking us, right? If you're unsure, go ahead and ask us. But again, try and take a stab at it because a lot of these things are not super specialized. And it always helps us learn if we think about, hey, this is what I think ID is going to say when I consult them. Mm-hmm. It always helps me learn, you know, what I'm wrong about and maybe what I do. Or write about. Or write about. <laughs> Rarely. But. I think I'm wrong more than right. Yeah, but I was going to yeah. say. Okay, Casey, what <laughs> else next, do you have for us? One? Yeah. Yeah. So the last one I had on my list, unless you guys have something else, is the just in quotes fungal pneumonia. Oh, yes. I there seems it. to be a lot of that running around Tennessee, yeah. I think, especially at Vanderbilt. <laughs> I think this is a good topic for it's, us. Yeah. And this is always a hard topic. I know we were just chatting earlier. I gave sort of an Azals talk to the residency program uh, just last week. Mm-hmm. And that's always fun to sort of go through and talk about a very similar subject. Um, we are sort of in histo- country, right? We're sort of, at least here in Tennessee, we have a ton of histoplasmosis. We see it all the time. Um, We don't see a lot of other just Mm. fungal pneumonias in immunocompetent people. Um, So I think one of the things I like to point out is just like any other pneumonia, kind of a viral pneumonia or a bacterial pneumonia, this is not diagnosed solely on imaging, right? This is a thorough history and physical. (laughs) Yes. So again, in immunocompetent people without a lot of significant risk factors, Mm. even if you do, we've probably all had histo at some point sitting here at this table, just living in Tennessee. And in general, it doesn't require treatment in young, healthy people. So a lot of times we don't even look for it in those folks. The people we do really look for it um, are the ones who have the kind of subacute 
right onset, kind mm-hmm. of night sweats, fever, sort of like a, I think of it as sort of like the lymphoma B symptoms, night sweats, fevers, probably have a cough, but really in order to get disseminated histoplasmosis, mm-hmm. it's really hard to do that unless you're immunocompromised in some way. So our HIV patients, our transplant patients, patients who are on high dose steroids, you know, for some other reason are, you know, rheumatologic folks. So those are really the people that we're targeting as these people could really require treatment for disseminated fungal infection. And we're talking here about aspergillus, histo, blasto, right, things like that. We're not talking about candida. (laughs) You're not diagnosing uh, candida pneumonia all over the place, Casey? Just on sputum. She diagnoses only on sputum. On sputum alone, yeah. Uh, Going back to the poor utility of sputum cultures, Right. Canada is normal flora in the lung. So unless you isolate it from an abscess in the lung, it's really mm-hmm. hard to attribute it to actually causing disease in the lung. Sort of similar to the urine where it really is just usually there not causing problems. Um, so we're really focused on sort of the other kind of fungal infections that actually cause really disseminated disease in a very specific patient population. But I think, again, one of the keys here is a history and physical. If they don't have any risk factors, if they don't have symptoms, right, if you just see something on imaging and they don't have a cough or shortness of breath, fevers, night sweats, it makes it much less likely, especially if in the absence of those sort of underlying risk factors, right? It all kind of goes together. I think a few follow-up questions yeah. just because I've been on pul- pulmonary consults recently <laughs> and have been sending a fair amount of 1,3-beta-D glucans. Could you comment also about in your history and physical, the time course of symptoms that would align with the fungal pneumonia? Yeah. So these are typically not acute, overwhelming infections. Again, you know, once you get someone who has disseminated disease, they can be very ill and kind of be in the ICU type setting. But a lot of times these are people who have had symptoms, who have gotten multiple courses of antibiotics Mm -hmm. and haven't gotten better. Again, it also also depends on their level of immunosuppression because if someone's just on, you know, 10 milligrams of prednisone a day, Mm -hmm. they're probably not the highest risk for a disseminated fungal infection. But if you're talking about an HIV patient with a CD4 count of two, I'm probably a lot more suspicious for disseminated infection, right? Especially if they're having respiratory symptoms. Diagnosis is probably the hardest thing here. Again, we talked about this is not an imaging diagnosis. Certain things like aspergillus, you can get the halo sign. And oh yeah, you're both pulmonary folks. You're not, I was like, wow, you're both nodding your head. Yeah. Yeah. So the, you know, that can be very helpful, especially in the right patient populations with aspergillus, like our neutropenic patients, especially our sort of leukemia, lymphoma folks. Mm. So that can be very helpful, at least to help us get started on the workup. And sometimes that's enough for us to treat in that patient population. But in everyone else, usually we want to actually have a diagnosis because treatment for these fungal infections is usually about a year of therapy. So and it's not it's not benign, right? So you're thinking yeah. about disseminated. If you're thinking about disseminated infection, you're talking about starting amphotericin B, right? Amphoterable, as a lot of us yeah. <laughs> were taught in medical school. So this is not, you know, a, oh, let's you know give them a short course of fluconazole. <laughs> I wish I wish that would work. Um, So it's a big deal. So you really want to have a diagnosis, if at all possible. Tests can be 
helpful, some of the non-invasive tests. So the antigens, specifically like histo and blasto, getting a galactamannin to look for aspergillus. 1,3-beta-D-glucan. Um, for our <laughs> listeners, uh, Casey is making a lot of facial expressions yeah, currently. It, um, it's hard. It can be very helpful. If it's negative, it's a lot more helpful than if it's mildly positive or very positive, right? It's very nonspecific. So it's hard to actually make a diagnosis based on the 1,3-beta-D-glucan. A lot of times it's sort of thrown in there with the fungal workup. So again, this is one of the times to maybe be thoughtful about what you're ordering, how high are your suspicions, what are you going to do with the outcome of the tests. I will say realistically, a lot of times it is reasonable to add it in when you're suspicious for kind of a true fungal pneumonia. But I do think we send these, you know, quote unquote fungal workups on a lot more people than we need to, because there's a very specific population in which we'd actually need to treat. Okay, Casey, before I even ask about treatment for a fungal pneumonia, because you can tell that I want to, we have come to 30 minutes time on this podcast so far. In order to keep things short and commute friendly, we are going to split this episode into two episodes because I know Casey has a great talk that has demystified antifungals for me. We're going to save treatment of fungal infections for part two of this episode. So this concludes our portion on common pages and pearls is a fun name that I've come up with right now. Tune into part two, where we pick up right where we left off, starting with everyone's favorite addition to broad spectrum antibiotics, mycofungin. Thank you, Casey. 